If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 2. We'll look at verses 8 through 17, actually. Uh, 9 through 17 is printed in the bulletin for you. Um, this morning, we're going to um, talk about something that... So, so we're a Reformed church. We don't throw that label out there too much. Uh, we generally uh, don't want to distinguish ourselves from other churches or from the, the uh, main kind of stream, the main uh, tradition of the church over the centuries. Uh, but, but we are Reformed, and one of the things that we think about um, uh, that we've, as a, as a tradition or as a denomination, um, we've thought about for, for many years is a, the concept of covenant, um, this, this idea of covenant theology. That's a big part of Reformed theology, how God uh, deals with people, how he uh, institutes relationships with people in the form of a covenant, the form of uh, mutual promises being made, a relationship that uh, has some stipulations put on it. And if you break those, if you break your promises to the other party, that uh, there are consequences for those things. And, and so uh, we're not going to describe everything about uh, covenants this morning, uh, but, but here what we see at the um, beginning of the scriptures in Genesis 2, what, what we'll look at in our text this morning, is uh, the first covenant that God made with humanity, the Adamic covenant, because he made it with Adam. Uh, Adamic covenant, or the covenant of works, as sometimes it's called. Um, but we're going to look at that this morning uh, because it's what's right there in front of us, and we'll explain a little bit about it, but, uh, but especially um, realizing that um, the covenant of works, the covenant made with Adam, leaves us in a pretty bad spot <laughs> because of what happens in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. Um, this covenant with Adam didn't quite work the way that it was supposed to work, and so um, because Adam sinned, and so there was a new covenant made, a covenant of grace, and Jesus Christ himself is the mediator of that new covenant, and so we'll talk about that uh, this morning as well, uh, kind of these, these two covenants with these two covenant heads, Adam and the second Adam, uh, Jesus Christ himself, and uh, I'll hopefully explain that, kind of bring it down to earth, uh, what, what that means um, theologically and, and practically for our lives, but that's what we'll talk about this morning, the covenant with Adam and the new covenant in Christ. So, um, so let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, your word is great. It is so great that... Um, Throughout this lifetime, throughout many lifetimes, uh, it's impossible for us to exhaust the uh, depths and the riches that are stored in your word uh, for your people. Uh, we can look at even the same passage over and over again for a long time, uh, different people looking at it from different perspectives and still not exhaust all the, the good and beautiful truth that is contained there. And so we pray um, that you would help us as we consider your word this morning, help us to know what is uh, of greatest value to us. Help us to know what is most important to us, what should shape our relationship with you, the way that we think about our relationship with you. Would you fix our eyes uh, especially on Jesus Christ himself as we consider this, your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, before we kind of get more fully into the two covenants that I've mentioned, the covenant with Adam and the covenant, the new covenant in Christ, I um, uh, want to talk about these two trees very briefly. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because those are things that you see referred to uh, throughout the scriptures, um, beginning and end and all throughout you see this concept of the, the tree of life and uh, we we heard Cindy uh, read from Revelation 22 where the tree of life is in the middle of uh, the, the the sanctuary city the new Jerusalem the new heavens and the new earth the, the place where God's people uh, live forever in God's presence and the, the tree of life is there and it's flourishing and it brings healing uh, it brings healing and restoration to all people and that's um, so it's a, an important theme and an important vision and these these two uh, trees here standing at the beginning of the, the scriptures are, are very important for us to consider. So first, the tree of life, and this very briefly, uh, John Calvin, who was a, a French uh, reformer who lived in Geneva back in the 1500s, he said that uh, about the tree of life that it's, it's a symbol and memorial of the life that Adam had been given by God. So God made Adam, he gave him life, he made him happy and holy, right? He made Adam a, a perfect creature. He had, Adam was not made a sinful creature, he was made a perfect, and he had a perfect relationship uh, with God there, one of obedience and happiness, and, uh, and things were good and things were right. Um, and so that was the original state that Adam was made in, and the tree of life was a symbol of the fact that God, I mean, God himself had planted that tree right in the middle of this garden, this real garden, this, in this real place, this place full of bounty and uh, water, full of fresh water that's just watering the whole garden and, and all these trees that are good to eat, and the tree of life is there, and, and Adam's able to eat from that tree, um, and it's a reminder for him, it's a, it's a memorial, and it's a symbol of the fact that God is the one who created him and, and is the one who sustains him. He's the one who gives him the food that he needs to survive. He's, he's the one who sustains him by his grace and um, and so it's a symbol and a memorial and it seems to us that what we see a little bit uh, later in chapter 3 and we'll read this uh, in a few minutes um, that when uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned and they were being excluded from the garden one of the main reasons that God gives is that so they would not eat the tree of life again and so the, the concept that you pick up from that is that the tree that continually eating 
that tree, uh, from that tree, the, the fruit of that tree, it confirms you in your existing state. There's something about it that confirms you in your existing state, which is a great thing when Adam's existing state is one of happiness and holiness. And it would be a terrible, unthinkable thing when Adam's existing state is one of uh, a misery and rebellion against God. To confirm him in, in that and to give him everlasting life uh, when he's in that state, would be, it would be cruel of God and uh, it, would be, it would be destructive and painful to live forever in that state of uh, rebellion against God. So, uh, so you get the concept then from, this, from these passages about the tree of life that, um, that eating the tree confirms you. It, it, it justifies you. There's something about it where it declares your acceptance how you are, right? It, it says something about you that's, um, yes, you're good how you are. You should stay that way. You should stay alive, uh, which is bad when you are uh, a sinner in rebellion against God to be confirmed in that. And, and that's why God uh, casts Adam and Eve out of the garden. Uh, it's the explicit reason given, because they, they should not be granted the acceptance that leads to eternal life for being sinners. Right? Uh, they should be granted acceptance that leads to eternal life for being righteous, and uh, obedient and submissive to God. And so, um, uh, so that's the, the tree of life. It, it has this, this um, effect of confirming you as you are, of almost like God's stamp of, stamp of approval on you that's more than just a stamp of approval. It actually um, upholds you and sustains you in your current state. Right? Um, and so that's the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the other hand, um, it is, uh, it's actually widely debated what that means, um, uh, how it works, that the tree is one where when you eat of it, uh, you somehow gain knowledge of good and evil, which is what the serpent uh, said to Adam it's how, uh, or, or to Eve in the garden in chapter 3, <clears throat> which we're really not going to get into. But the concept here is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, knowledge is something of an intimate awareness, right? Something of a, when you see in the scriptures the word knowledge, it usually means more than just kind of processing intellectual understanding of information, right? It usually means more than just bare uh, head knowledge. It means like a heart knowledge, intimate awareness, a real experiential knowledge of, uh, and this tree eating of this fruit would give the knowledge, the intimate kind of experiential knowledge of uh, good and evil. And uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later in a few minutes, but um, Adam and Eve were meant to have an understanding of good and evil. They were meant to grow in wisdom, uh, in their relationship with God through obedience rather than through disobedience. They were meant to uh, have, in a sense, God's kind of knowledge of good and evil, one where God has not committed sin, so he doesn't know evil uh, experientially himself. He hasn't practiced it, but he knows all about good and evil, right? Um, and, and they're supposed to gain that kind of wisdom, but instead the servant tricks them into thinking uh, the only way to gain knowledge of good and evil and to be like God is to actually disobey God and to gain the experiential practical knowledge of evil through your own disobedience, through your own sin. And so um, they had two paths before them uh, two paths toward real knowledge of good and evil, and um, the path that God laid out for them was the one where they would not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
and the, the devil uh, tricked them into eating of it and gaining the knowledge that way. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, <clears throat> So these trees have an effect on you. Uh, on They had an effect on Adam here. Uh, th- these effects were prescribed. There's something that we can understand about these things. And the effects are not magical. Right? It's, not like, it's not necessarily that these trees, the fruit of, uh, of them has some kind of magical power that, uh, that makes these things happen, eternal life or knowledge of good and evil, right? Um, Derek Kidner says that, um, he's a commentator on the book of Genesis, he says that the trees are not magical but rather sacramental in the broad sense of the word. So sacraments, we, we acknowledge sacrament with a capital S. Uh, we have two sacraments. There's baptism and there's the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the water and the Lord's Supper is right down there in front of me, the, the bread and the cup, and uh, those have significance, and there's some real spiritual uh, uh, nourishment and, and vitality that's to be gotten through those tangible, physical elements, and it's, it's God meeting with us, it's God making promises to us, and God helping us to grow in our faith through things that are found in the physical world, just regular old physical material stuff. That's the two sacraments that we have are... are um, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, but the word sacrament, kind of in a broad sense, which is how Kinder's using this, uh, almost everything in the world is intended to be sacramental in that sense. The way that we uh, experience God's care for us through our daily food, um, and, and the way that we can live in a relationship with God in the material world that we're in, right? Um, uh, this, the, the idea of sacrament goes beyond just the two of um, baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, in a broad sense. And that's what he's saying. He says, the trees are not magical, but rather sacramental in the broad sense of the word, in that they are the physical means of a spiritual transaction. These trees are the physical means. They're right there in the garden. You can reach up and take their fruit and eat it. They're the physical means of a spiritual transaction. Because when you take that fruit, it says something. There's something that happens in your relationship with God because you're engaging with this physical thing in this way, right? The fruit, Kidner continues, the fruit not in its own right, but as appointed to a function and carrying a word from God confronts man with God's will and gives man a decisive yes or no to say with his whole being, especially talking about the the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This thing's standing right in front of you, and either you're going to take it and eat it or you're not. And when you do that, you're saying yes to God or you're saying no to God with your whole being, not just in some kind of nebulous spiritual kind of way, but in an actual physical obedience or disobedience kind of a way. With your whole being, you're standing there in front of a tree and you're responding to God by what you do with this tree, right? That's what uh, Kidner's saying. <clears throat> and so those are the, those are the uh, sorry, maybe longer than brief introduction of the, uh, the two trees uh, but this is what the covenant of Adam was about. It's about this, this one tree in particular, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it says in 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in, that day, uh, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's some language here that shows up in the English. Uh, they're, they're trying to do it... Uh, uh, with this word surely, right? You may surely eat. You, you will surely die. You may surely eat of every tree, 
except for that one, if you do, you shall surely die. And that, that language is, in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. It's kind of like a double, uh, double verb, um, the way that it shows up. Uh, kind of hard to translate in English. It's, um, you know, the first one would be, you may eat, eat of every tree in the garden, but if you eat of this tree, the day you eat it, you will die, die. Right? That's the, ma- the emphasis, the way that the language is being used there. Um, <clears throat> eat, eat, right? You may surely eat of everything that you see in front of you, except for one, good for food. You can enjoy it all, Adam. Menu. And we lose sight of the tremendous generosity of God to give us uh, the essence of it. it it's, humanity is supposed to be in a relationship with God where it's characterized by submissive obedience. Pretty simple. Uh, just submissive obedience to the one who created us, to the one who gives us all things for life and health and peace and flourishing. Just submissive obedience, right? And, and really very limited. There's one fruit of all the fruits in the world that's off the menu. Right? Uh, very simple, submissive obedience. And uh, we ask why? Was there something about this fruit in particular would it have been bad for us? Was it poisonous? Was it bad for our health? Is it going to mess up our teeth? Or what it, we look for reasons why, why God would say, not this fruit. All the other fruits are great, not this fruit. And uh, when we look for reasons like that, we're doing exactly what we're not supposed to be doing. <clears throat> we are supposed to obey simply because God is who he is, He's greater than us, he's more powerful than us, he's wiser than us, he's better than us, um, and he loves us, right? Simply because he is who he is, and, uh, and he commanded it. Not because it makes sense, not because we've figured out the reason, oh, that must be why we're not supposed to touch that fruit, right? Not because uh, it, it really benefits us one way or the other, or it's good for our health or bad for our health, right? Uh, when we come up with reasons like that that we can process through and then make a decision based on that kind of reasoning, that's not submissive obedience. That's, that's not submissive obedience. It's simply, purely for the reason that God said, don't eat that fruit. And God is who he is, and he's the one who said it. And that relationship, that should be enough. Right, that should be enough for us. Uh, it says in, in Proverbs... Chapter 3, probably a familiar passage for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And that's kind of the simple test that's in front of Adam right here. Trust in the Lord or lean on your own understanding. Decide that for personal reasons, I've decided that that fruit looks good to me to eat. And I'm going to eat it in spite of what God said, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't, don't eat that fruit. Even if you don't understand why you're not supposed to eat that fruit, don't eat it because God said it. And your relationship with him is supposed to be characterized by your submissive obedience. And, uh, and so John Calvin again says that the fruit was prohibited that man would not seek to be wiser than became him nor by trusting to his own understanding cast off the yoke of God, that he might not rely on his own prudence, 
but that cleaving to God alone, he might become wise only by his obedience. That was what, what it was set up for. To become wise, to actually gain knowledge of good and evil, to become wise through submissive obedience rather than disobedience. And uh, I don't know if you've <clears throat> read um, or heard of C.S. Lewis's uh, three books. He's got these books called The Space Trilogy. And the second book is called Paralandra. And so I'm not going to take time to explain the whole story to you, but basically, uh, Paralandra, the main character, his name's Ransom. It's actually where we got the idea for our oldest son's name. Uh, the main character goes to a different planet, goes to Venus. And uh, it's, it's kind of sci-fi fantasy, so it's, Venus is survivable <laughs> in, this, uh, in this world. And um, C.S. Lewis writes of him going to, to Venus, which is a pristine planet. It's a planet without sin. And there are only two residents of this planet, and the, the name for it in the books is Paralandra. That's why the book's called Paralandra. But there are only two residents. There's the king and there's the queen. And it's, uh, it's, it's like the Garden of Eden. This whole planet is like the Garden of Eden with uh, the first two inhabitants, Adam and Eve. This is kind of the parallel that Lewis is drawing. Um, and Ransom is sent there, actually, to, uh, to help the queen stave off the temptations of the evil one. Right? The evil one also goes to the planet uh, in the form of a human being and tries to tempt the queen to do what she's not supposed to do. In fact, what, the only thing they're not supposed to do is spend the night on a certain island. Right? They've got the whole world available to them. It's a world of, of uh, pleasant goodness and beauty. The whole world's available to them. Don't spend the night on that certain island. They're not given any reason for it. They're just told to do it. And she, in a state of holiness and happiness, in a, in a state of perfection in relationship with God, she says, yeah, we're not supposed to do that. And actually, in this story, instead of falling into sin, uh, she obeys and, uh, and, um, and, you know, doesn't sin, doesn't spend the night on that island. And what happens uh, at the end of it, <clears throat> uh, this is what the, the king says, uh, the king of uh, Paralandra says, we have learned of evil. We have learned of evil, though not as the evil one wished us to learn. We have learned better than that, and know it more, for it is waking that understands sleep, not sleep that understands waking. There is a darker ignorance that comes from doing evil, as men by sleeping lose the knowledge of sleep. So um, the, the parallel that they're drawing there is like, being awake is being in a, in a good relationship of God, with God where you have real wisdom. Being asleep is being out of relationship with God uh, where you might have some knowledge of evil. It's that experiential knowledge. But being awake, being alive to God, being in that right relationship and having the wisdom that, that God gives you uh, through your obedience, <clears throat> that's a better wisdom and you understand evil. You do understand it. You have the knowledge of it, but in a better way than if you had practiced it. Right? And that's what he's trying to bring out and that was the goal for us. Here's this tree. It's a test for you, for your relational, submissive obedience to God. And if you continue in that obedience, you continue in that relationship, you will live forever in God's presence, and you will grow. You'll grow, and you'll flourish as you were meant to, and you'll have all wisdom, wisdom, even the knowledge of good and evil, the way it was meant to be. Right? This is what's laid out before Adam, but um, as we know, unfortunately... 
from the scriptures from the next chapter, um, Adam transgressed the covenant. Adam transgressed the covenant. And that's actually uh, almost a quote from um, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, that puts it in this covenantal language. Adam transgressed the covenant. There was a relationship that existed between God and Adam where Adam was supposed to obey. He was supposed to submissively obey, and he disobeyed. He broke that relationship, right? Adam transgressed the covenant. The kingly creature made in God's image, made for life with God, fell out of that glorious relationship. Even with all of God's liberal, generous blessings, right? you can eat, you can surely eat of everything else. Right? Even with that, and even with the threat of death. But if you do eat of this, in that day you will die. Even with that, um, humanity chose rebellion, chose autonomy from God, ultimately chose death. Um, and that result, that, um, that death, the scriptures understand death, I think, differently than uh, is, is usual for us to understand death. We think of death only as that thing that happens uh, generally once in a person's life, right at the very end, where you stop breathing and your brain functions shut down and your heart stops beating and you go from animate and uh, a living soul to inanimate, lifeless, right? That transition, that's the way we think of death, only strictly kind of in that material sense, uh, that physical sense. But um, the death that we see being talked about here and talked about throughout the scriptures, death, death is being outside of fellowship with God. That's the way the scriptures understand death. God, in his word, tells us what death means, and it means when you no longer have a relationship with me that you're supposed to have, right? When, when we're not in that um, fellowship with him, and we, we see that, uh, actually we see kind of the opposite of it. We get a definition of what life is from Jesus. When he's praying to his father in John 17, he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So life is knowing. Again, knowing is having an intimate awareness, having an experiential kind of a relational knowledge of God. That's what eternal life is, Jesus says. Eternal life is relationship with God. So death is the breaking of that. It's, it's being outcast. It's being outside of fellowship with God. And that means uh, what we see here... <clears throat> What we see here when, when uh, God says to Adam, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. We hear that as kind of a cruel threat, right? And there is something of, of, it, uh, of the threat in it, but it's actually just descriptive. It's just descriptive. It's a descriptive threat, right? It's a warning uh, that when you eat that fruit... When you take yourself out of relationship with me, how this relationship is supposed to work, when you take yourself out, that's death. You're going to die when you eat that fruit. Because when you eat that fruit, it means you, you've, you've chosen that. You've chosen, to, you've chosen rebellion. You've chosen autonomy. You've chosen not to be in a submissive, obedient relationship with me, is what God says. So um, it's a descriptive threat. And that's what death is. That's what hell is. It's true there's an, there's an element of hell that uh, this is what you justly deserve for your sin, and God is giving it to you. 
But there's also this other facet where this is what you signed up for. This is death. This is outside of fellowship with God. You didn't apparently want to exist in relationship with God the way that he set it forth on his terms. You didn't want that. You didn't want him. You took yourself out of it. That's all hell is, is being cast out of God's presence forever with no hope of return. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a punishment that is absolutely commensurate with the offense. The offense itself, the sin, the rebellion against God, it brings about death. Right? It brings about disintegration in your relationship with God. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin. When you commit sin, it pays you back with death. Right? Um, alienation from God. That's what it is. The day you eat, the day that you sin, you will experience alienation from God, disintegration that ensues from that. You want it, because you reached out your hand and you picked up that apple. You did what God said not to do. You, you, uh, you disobeyed. Right? You want it, you got it. You want it, you got it. Um, Psalm 73 has a... Uh, there's a song that we sing. Actually, we're going to sing uh, during communion, in sweet communion. Um, and that's the Psalter version of Psalm 73. And in it... You hear these lyrics, in sweet communion, Lord, with you I constantly abide. I abide in this, this relationship with you that's characterized by sweet communion, blessed communion. And later in the song it says, to live apart from God is death. Right? That's what death is. That's the result of the breaking of the covenant, uh, of, of the Adamic covenant. To live apart from God is death. It says in the, in the actual scripture text, Psalm 73, those who are far from you, God, shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. What we want, what we were made for, and what we want is to be in that relationship with God in, in one of sweet communion, in one where we're near God, where there's eternal life in knowing God and Jesus whom he sent. And that's, uh, that's what we want. And um, C.S. Lewis in another place says that if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God... How could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Once a man is united to God, how could you not live forever? Because you're united to the one who is eternal life. He's the fountain of it. And if you're united to him, how could you not live forever? And if you're apart from him, that's death. How could you not wither and die? If you live apart from God, that's what the Bible calls death. We're dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. We're 
dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Um, it's even the beginning of hell itself, right? In this life, we have the beginning of hell itself being outside of communion with God. Utter alienation from the fountain of life and the grace and, uh, and love that's found in God. And so John Calvin says that the miseries and evils, both of soul and body, with which man is beset so long as he is on earth, are a kind of entrance into death. Death, um, death isn't just what happens at the end of your life. You're kind of entering into it now through uh, being separated from God by your sin um, until death itself entirely absorbs you. For the scripture everywhere calls those dead who, being oppressed by the tyranny of sin and Satan, they breathe nothing but their own destruction. And so, uh, after Adam transgressed the covenant, broke the covenant, disobeyed, took himself out of that relationship with God, it says in Genesis 3, starting in verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So um, Peter Mead has a good book on the incarnation. And he says that God knew that to clothe an immoral soul in an immortal body would be cruel in the extreme, so he barred access to the tree of life. He says to Adam, I cannot confirm you in eternal life in the state that you're in, one of rebellion, one of death, one outside of relationship with me. I can't say that that's good and let you live forever that way. Um, and so, uh, so we needed a new covenant. We needed a new deal. We needed a new way to have a relationship with God because Adam blew it. And in him, uh, we all blew it, right? So Adam, Adam was the, he's the representative for the human race, right? God uh, gave these instructions to him before it's recorded that he made Eve. And yet Eve uh, referred to these instructions that you should not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She referred to that as if it was made to her. Even though she wasn't around when God gave these uh, instructions, she was, in a sense, in Adam, right? Because God took a rib out of Adam and made Eve with it. She was in him, and so the covenant that was made with Adam was also made with her, right? Because they're of the same flesh, right? The same humanity. And, uh, and so also are we, all of us. We share the flesh of Adam. We share the nature of Adam. And Adam, as our representative in that covenant with God, he broke covenant with God, and so all of us are covenant breakers in him. Right? And so, um, so we need a new covenant. We need a new way to relate to Christ. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. When you, when you sin, sin pays you back with death. The wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have a new representative, right? A new covenant head. A new representative for humanity, for those who are in him, right? We're all in Adam. We need to be in Christ, a new representative. He's the second Adam, he's called. 
in, uh, in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, other places where uh, it's made clear um, he's, he's the new representative for the human race, and he is engaged in a covenant with God, and he, and he perfectly fulfills his end of the deal, right? He is perfectly, submissively obedient to God, as we were meant to be, but we're not, but he does it on our behalf, right? He lives the perfect life on our behalf. He has a perfect relationship with God, and he gives that to us as a free gift of his grace. And that means that through Christ, when you're in Christ, when you're in this new head of a new humanity, one that's made right with God, if you're in him by faith, you're spiritually united to him, then uh, you enjoy his own relationship with God. He calls God his father, and he has a perfect relationship with him, and so you you can call God your father, and you can know that you have eternal life uh, uh, consisting of relationship with him uh, forever. Romans 5, 19 says, As by the one man's disobedience, so Adam, by his disobedience, the many were made sinners, so broken relationship with God, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam sinned, messed it up for all of us. Jesus obeyed and made it right for all of us who are in him by faith. Uh, Jesus offered true obedience to God, and the other side of this covenant deal, he suffered the alienation that we deserve. He suffered the disintegration that we deserve for our rebellion. He suffered the consequences of the broken covenant. He, he suffered death and hell. Right? Even though he perfectly obeyed his father, and he was innocent, and he was pure, and he was holy, he suffered as if he had been a rebel, an autonomous traitor against God, right? as if he had been disobedient. He suffered the consequences of that relationship again, in our place, as our substitute, so that we would not have to suffer the eternal consequences for our rebellion against God. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why have you forsaken me? Even though he was utterly forsaken, even though he was cast into the outer darkness and suffered this infinite weeping and gnashing of teeth, under the wrath of God itself on the cross, dying in our place, dying the death that sinners deserve to die, under God's wrath, the disintegration that we've called on ourselves by breaking the covenant, right? even though he was suffering all of that infinitely, unimaginably for us, he remained faithful, which is something that none of us would ever even come close to. Right? He remained faithful even though he was utterly forsaken by God. And Hebrews 5 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, believe, who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. Right? He's, the, he's the go-between. Right? He's our high priest. He's our mediator between uh, God and humanity. He's the mediator of this new covenant in him. We have eternal life. We have restored relationship with God. We have basically the tree of life. Right? We have that. And, and we have it uh, at least symbolically promised to us in uh, what was read earlier in Revelation 22 in the New Testament reading. It says the angel, uh, this is John's vision at the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of the, the whole Bible. 
the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. So again, it's this picture of Eden where you've got this huge river that breaks into four rivers that, that uh, water the whole garden, right? This picture of life and sustenance. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So it's, it's never barren. It's always life-giving and always fruit-bearing, right? The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No more curse. That's what we... That's what we got. We wanted it, we got it, right? God cursed us, and he cast us out of his presence for choosing to not be with him in, in the relationship that we were made for, right? We chose rebellion, we chose sin, God cursed us, and, um, and there will be no more curse in this new heavens and the new earth, this picture of uh, when Jesus returns and he makes all things right, and his people are made to live with God forever in peace and love and joy and glory that will never stop because once you're united to the God who is eternal life, how can you, how can you not live forever? Right? And that's what's waiting for those uh, who put their faith in Christ. Vern Poitras says of this passage, Eden is back. Right? This passage you see at the end of the scriptures, Eden is back with its fullness of blessing multiplied many times. The apex of history is ever so much more magnificent than the beginning. The garden is now a city, and the light has completely driven out the night. The sureness of that final bliss comforts the saints during times of temptation and persecution. It purifies our desires by directing them to God and his glory. And so the only way for this to be a reality for you, for this to be your reality, your future destiny, your eternal life, to be this, this blessed life of communion with God, where everything's made right because you're in his presence forever. Uh, the only way for that to be true for you is through relationship with Jesus Christ uh, and with the one true living God through him, right? through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, John Calvin says, let us know that when we've departed from Christ, nothing remains for us but death. So turn to Christ for life. And here are some, I'm just sorry, I'm going to run through some brief applications for us. Um, in terms of how this renews our relationship with God, in terms of our own obedience, right? Because we were made for this relationship that's to be characterized by our, uh, by our submissive obedience to God. And now, uh, through faith in Christ, we can have that restored. We can have that relationship restored and start to kind of function properly again, the way we were always meant to function and live in God's presence. Again, from Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't lean on your own understanding. When God says, this is how it is, this is how it should be, this is God's word to you, this is what it looks like to live a life of obedience to God, your response should not be, let me think about that, and see whether that kind of rubs me wrong, whether that seems to fit with the rest of my worldview. Um, let me kind of weigh the pluses and minuses of that before I make a decision about whether to obey God. Right? Don't, don't be wise in your own sight. Don't lean on your own understanding. The default hermeneutic 
uh, the way that we should read God's word to us, the scriptures, um, about how to live in relationship with him, the default should be submission rather than suspicion. Right? The default hermeneutic should be submission rather than suspicion. We should interpret his word as good even where it runs against our preferences. And there's lots of ways in which this happens all the time, especially in our culture. We've got so many ways that uh, people reject God's word because it says this or that about relationships between men and women, or it says this and that about uh, relationships between um, uh, masters and slaves, or, or the way that we're supposed to live. That, that, that seems repressive to me. Or um, There's so many ways in which God's word rubs us wrong. If we're sitting here thinking about uh, whether or not we want to obey what he says, uh, we've, we've kind of already missed the point. Right? He has said it, and there's a sense in which our proper response is submissive obedience. So, for example, something that might run against your preferences, but something that um, is just simple and clear in the scriptures, is that um, God says that men are to be elders in the church and not women. I probably wouldn't have written that down if writing down the Bible were up to me. Right? People in our culture, that's offensive. That seems to speak against uh, equality that we've fought so hard for. Right? It doesn't make any sense. How can there be any benefits to that when there's so many women who are so caring and good and kind and wise and gracious and helpful in the church? Don't we want them to be in a place where they're, they're able to exercise their ministry in that, in that place, as, as an elder. Like, wouldn't we want to do that? Just based on practical reasons? Yeah. Why not? But God says it. He says it fairly, fairly clearly. And that bugs us. But it's a chance for us to submit rather than to lean on our own understanding and be wise in our own eyes. It might not make sense to me. It might rub me wrong. But it's kind of hard to get around that it's right there in the Scriptures. Right? And God says it. It's right there. And, and utter trust in his grace, a, a real relationship where, where you're in Jesus Christ by faith. We have a real relationship with God where it's one you know you can trust that he loves you and he's out for your best and he's, he's got plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Right? Everything that he has in store for you ultimately is good. When he says something like this that kind of bugs you, it's okay. Right? You can trust him. You don't have to figure it all out and make the arguments in your head about whether or not you're going to go with that particular verse, right? Uh, with that particular expression of your obedience. You can trust his grace and interpret what he's saying as good, even if you don't understand it. And just let your life be characterized by a submissive obedience on that, uh, on that, in that way, right? Um, interpreting your circumstances as good, right? Not just... Uh, the word of God and, and being prone to read it submissively rather than sus with suspicion, uh, but interpreting your circumstances as good from his sovereign hand, because we all know uh, a lot in life is not pleasant and, um, uh, and it hurts. And so we question God's goodness or his power or his wisdom in allowing certain circumstances to come into our lives. We question that, right? And um, Paul says, this in 2 Corinthians 12 to keep me from being conceited a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited 
So uh, don't know exactly what this is, some kind of maybe physical ailment, right? But to keep Paul from being conceited, which is a good thing, everybody would say, it's bad to be conceited, it's good for God to work in your life in a way that would make you not conceited. And, and it says that God ultimately orchestrated whatever this is in his life to keep him from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. This is not a pleasant circumstance in my life. I don't think it's good, right? If I were in charge of my life, I wouldn't have chosen this for myself. I want it gone. Please make it go away, right? Uh, Three times. So persistently, he's pleading with God in prayer, make this go away. But, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When he's weak, he's dependent on God. He has to rely on God for everything. When he's strong, it's easy to be tempted to think that, you know, you're really the one making decisions here. It's, it's easy to live autonomously from God, independently, when you're strong. But when you're weak, and God has you at a place in your life where you're weak, he's got circumstances in your life that are painful, and it causes you to be dependent on him and submissive to him, that is good. It might be painful, but it is good, and it's coming from a good God, from his sovereign hand. Um, and so contentedness with his wise and good providence where you find yourself in the circumstances of your life. That's, a, that's an application of uh, this, your relationship being restored and made right in Christ. Submission without perfect understanding. Right? That's kind of the, the application here. Submission without perfect understanding. Because you'll never have perfect understanding. And that was never intended to be a prerequisite for your obedience. Right? You were never meant to understand everything. And then once you've got a good handle on it, say, okay, then I guess I'll obey God. Uh, your life is to be characterized by submissive obedience to God, and that can only happen through faith in Jesus Christ, where you know God to be your good father because of uh, what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. So, um, so submit to him and, uh, and put your faith in Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> father, this is very hard for us because... Uh, as we know well from your scriptures and from experience, um, everything since humanity fell into rebellion against you, um, everything in our lives is characterized by a desire to be autonomous from you, independent from you, to be our own gods and not submissive to anyone, especially not you. And we pray that you would overcome that, uh, that state of our hearts that you would overcome all the obstacles in our minds and in our hearts, that you would show us that what you intend for us is good. It must be good because you've given the life of your own son for us. And so how will you not, um, along with him, freely give us all things and make our life and our destiny and our communion with you uh, good and, and glorious? Uh, we do put our trust in you because you've revealed yourself through Jesus We trust you, and we rely on you, and we pray for those uh, many times where it's hard for us to submit to your will, that you would renew in us this sense of your relationship that we have with you by grace, this new covenant that's in Christ that makes uh, the whole world new, and it makes our our lives new in, in, in 
good relationship with you. We pray that that would be at the core of the way that we interact with you and that it would result in our submissive, uh, submissive obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.